Welcome to What's My Thesis. I'm your host, Javier Proenza. Every week, my guests and I share the answers we found to the questions we have. Join us as we explore and expand our worldview through research and ask, what's my thesis? And today, I met my guest in a... Um, I just want people to know how young and hip I am. In a chat room for a Twitch stream, uh, <laughs> Andre Terrell Jackson. Did I say it right? Yes. <laughs> we met in Rakim's uh, Twitch stream, Rakim Cunningham's st- uh, stream, and uh, you come very well recommended. And I saw your your work, which was I was excited to to check out. So you're in New Jersey, right? I am in New Jersey. Is that where you grew up? Is that where you're from? It, it, yeah, I'm actually in my family home that I grew up in, in the same bedroom I stayed in years and years and years ago. Oh, really? Yeah. How's that adjustment? Uh, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's different after having been gone for a while. Don't worry. I've been there. I've been an adult living with parents as well. It's It can get tough. Yeah. It, so. Yeah. Uh, it can make you think that you're going crazy, but you're not. <laughs> it's okay. I have therapy for that now. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's a must. Uh, so what's up, man? How you been during quarantine and all? I mean, obviously there's a lot of stuff going on. If you want to talk about that, you're definitely more than welcome to. I just don't want to make you talk about topical shit because uh, I don't usually uh, do that anyway. Uh, no, let's let's talk about it before we get into it. I'm okay. Not, you know, this is only my second podcast. Oh, really? Situation. So I'm still very green. Oh, I'm, dude, I mean, I make a podcast. That doesn't know, mean I know what I'm fucking doing. <laughs> I don't know. I, like, after you invited me on, I went back to listen to a couple of episodes, especially, um, you know, I listened to the one with Rakeem first, and I was like, wow, there's nothing left for me to talk about. Rakeem <laughs> talked about everything that I would talk about. But, yes, yeah, so let's start with, you know, the elephant in the room, which yeah. is uh, COVID-19. Allegedly, we're in the green in New Jersey, mm-hmm. things are opening up. I started a new job um, almost a month ago doing data entry overnight because for a medical company mm-hmm. um, because they have a huge influx of COVID testing. Mm. Um, and so uh, that has been interesting because now I went from like not leaving my house at all except to go like to the grocery store to now kind of being out as much as like I would have been before this. Oh, really? So like, it's a little bit different for me now, uh, before I was really like trying to avoid as much kind of interaction with people as possible. But yeah. So I'm in like a weird place where I'm like, Oh, you know, everyone needs to wear masks, be safe, blah, blah, blah. But I'm also like, I like literally like am doing like a normal things, quote unquote. (laughs) Like, yeah. I mean, yeah. So, uh, and then with you know everything else going on, you know protests and uh, just like a lot of different conversations. I mean, that is kind of actually this is a great segue. That is what um, inspired me to start doing the work that I'm doing. Actually, mm-hmm. when um, Black Lives Matter first started, uh, I just was like, you know, at the time I was in grad school for fashion. Uh-huh. And, uh, it just felt really constricting to not be able to feel like I was fully talking about the things I wanted to talk about. So, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, 
Can we get a little bit more context about your background? Like, I because New Jersey is completely new to me. Uh, what like, what what? I, you know, I only know about the fucking mob, <laughs> and I feel like such an ignorant oh my asshole. Goodness. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, so I feel like if in a podcast where people teach me about stuff, I should learn a little bit about New Jersey. Let me, yeah. Let me <laughs> give you a little bit about where I'm from in New Jersey. So I, first of all, I live in the Burbs. I'm outside of Trenton, which is the capital. Uh-huh. And what's interesting about kind of how I grew up is that I went to private school. Okay. From 6th through 12th. And so I'm used to very much like the burbs of New Jersey. Like when people are like, oh, the highway and no pollution. I'm like, I did not experience that. Mm. I am used to like farms and <laughs> orchards and like how far from like the city are you from New York City are you I'm only like an hour in some change train ride like it's not like super far at all and, is that like, westward like, 45 minute drive from Philly okay uh, no northward northward I see. Yeah, I'm, so, like, I'm like I don't even know where like the the states. So line I live up. in the place <laughs> like if you were from this area I live in this place part of New Jersey that is a legend and a myth mm-hmm. um, called central New Jersey, which like <laughs> it shouldn't be a legend and a myth because if you have North Jersey and South Jersey, whatever's in the middle would be central. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. But it's like this huge, it's like a weird New Jersey thing, but like literally central New Jersey is so different. Like, because in North Jersey is basically New York. Cause you know, okay. a lot of people moved out of New York to live there cause it was cheaper uh, it's definitely like much more city. And I mean, it's pretty much the same thing with South Jersey being across from Philadelphia. Yeah. But, you know, like I said, central New Jersey, like we literally have um, this place called Terhune Orchards um, where during the fall, like people go for apple picking, cider, cider donut. Like that okay. is the experience that I have of New Jersey. And so when people are like, oh, Jersey Shore, I'm like that. I don't know anything about that. Um, uh, well, I'm glad that that was my first point of reference. I mean, not that mafia I is much be- better. But, okay, but. Yeah, no, I feel like I feel like it is though. Like, I okay. feel like it's much more like like I feel like that feels more representative. Like, or at least it has a like, historical context of bootlicker, uh, boot bootlickers, jeez, bootleggers, and uh, and that kind of thing, right? Yeah. Well, because you know the whole thing is like you know how are we representing this place that like growing up i didn't have any negative feelings about new jersey and then all of a sudden on the internet people were like it's the armpit of the usa (laughs) (laughs) well that's interesting that That actually you know one of the things that's been registering to me for me a lot is like what it must be like to uh live in like what is not politely referred to as flyover country which Mm -hmm. if you look back at like all the media that I grew up in, I know that you, I mean, I'm assuming because of your email, you were born in the nineties, but, but the idea of uh, uh, like just all the media that we used to watch is so, uh, such, so derogatory towards like, you know, Omaha and Kansas. And like, I'm sure that that is not a healthy dynamic that ends up building up in people right like if you're if the place Mm. where you're from is constantly shit on in media and called the armpit like that must be i don't know how does does that bother you at all uh i mean it does not i i'm like a weird person because 
as much as I like love living here, I don't necessarily feel like I'm from here because I've spent so much time like other places, like my, like my real formative years, you know, I went away for undergrad. I mean, I didn't go that far. I went, you know, over to Pennsylvania mm-hmm. and then for graduate school, I went down to Georgia. So like, hmm. I don't necessarily feel super connected to here, but I think that that's also just kind of part of the black experience where like you don't necessarily feel super connected to a place unless you like grew up, you know, with a strong sense of like community, which I like did not necessarily do. So when you say suburbs, they're white suburbs then they're not like a middle-class black suburbs. Cause yeah, no. I actually hadn't even seen that until I moved to LA. I really, that was like a, a new experience to me. I mean, there is like little Haiti and stuff like that in Miami, but then th- you got Florida. <laughs> and the rest, <laughs> you know, it's not you like, know, <laughs> it's not like that we, happens we over there. We are just like such a weird country where yeah. we're just like, oh, you know, that state's all bad or that, that place, you know, that section of the country is all bad. And it's like, you know, it's not it's not really realistic. And I think it creates these like binary situations where it's like north good, south bad. Yeah. Well, Excuse the me. one thing I will say about Florida is that it, it is as fucking batshit crazy as uh, and like sometimes it gets dark and scary over there. But at the same time, it's one of the things that you lose in the narrative is just how much fun that insanity is. It's more like a Carl Hyacin book. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's a very specific Florida author. He's like a good Dave Barry, who you may also know, um, but, or may not know, because they're like fucking <laughs> mainstream white pop culture from Florida. So it's totally understandable. Mm. But they're like... Um, okay. But they're sort of like... Carl Hyacin's a mystery novel guy, and... I think he wrote, okay. he's the guy that wrote Strip Tease. So they're kind of like mainstream people that like, if you're from Florida, you know about, cause you know that Dave Barry, everyone thinks he's funny, but he's not actually funny. And that, uh, Carl Hyacin is actually really, really good at writing about Florida, even though Strip Tease wasn't a good movie. Mm. There's a lot of shit well, where like people are like, you know, uh, another kind of, uh, did you ever see, uh, what's that movie with, uh, Nicolas Cage? About the flowers adaptation. I don't think so. You never saw adaptation? No. Oh, okay. No. Anyway, it's just fucking hot and sweaty. Anyway, so so like you're in the suburbs, but you're near um, farmland and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, basically, like where I mean, it's just a very weird place. Like, I mean, you know. It's called the Garden State, mm-hmm. and literally, like for me, like that experience was very like that made sense to me growing up. I'm like, I can like grow, I can like drive past like like farmland, like people with horses, people with cows, like that. Like, that is not weird here, mm-hmm. and I don't think that that's what people think of when they think of New Jersey, like at all. Yeah, I think we think of uh, like the it being more of a suburb to to New York. And that's like what gets most play, right? Yeah, I think I think that's accurate. The one thing I do remember, I, I have been to a one Thanksgiving in a New Jersey apartment, and the thing that blew me away was it was the first time I saw carpeting on the wall. Oh no! I don't know. Is that a thing, or is that just one house? 
Uh, it's that, but that does not surprise me either. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think we missed the beginning of that. Like, of your like that, that also feels... Oh, sorry. I was just saying that that um, does not sound out of place here. Yeah, yeah. I have never personally experienced that. <laughs> but it was definitely one of those details that you're like, oh, shit, I'm in a different place. have a topic today i we're gonna hop okay that's fine yeah that Uh, sounds good because i've been so i am like a novice person into astrology okay and so i feel like it's like important that i tell you i have a virgo moon okay Um, and the reason i say that is because i like have to like I have like a little bit of a perfectionist streak, which manifests as me like, oh, I'm going to go on this show. So I need to listen to as many episodes as possible. <laughs> so I, uh, I appreciate the downloads, on. man. I'm, are you sick of me yet? <laughs> um, you oh. know what? <laughs> oh, I oh. That, <laughs> I think that I have too much of an idea of you as a person now. <laughs> I think I went a little overboard because okay. now I'm like, oh, like there's no mystery anymore. It's like Well the mystery whereas, should like, be coming you, from you. Yeah, yeah. So I should I be like, more for curious. You, it's about a mystery. Yeah. <laughs> for me it's not a mystery anymore. Um so you know that yeah, I'm so, you know already know that I'm a little excited about the topic already because I am into uh you know kind of places where you your your brain goes outside of reason maybe i don't know not outside of reason mm-hmm. is fair but you know like a verifiable scientific like yeah <laughs> yeah but i think that that is like i mean that's been me my whole life like yeah. i i mean we're, we're not really talking about this i'm only bringing it up because i'm like i've already listened to multiple queer people and multiple um, gender variant people talk on your show. Okay. We're pretty much going to talk about very similar things. Oh, that happens. Uh, It's perspective. Yeah. But I will say like the thing about, I think that like, so I've always been into astronomy. That's the thing. Like I always have been like, I am such an Aquarius. Like, Oh my God. And I think now the way that I approach astronomy is less so like, I have an excuse for my behavior and more like, Oh, that explains why I work, why I like process the world the way that I do. Uh-huh. Like it's a, like, that doesn't sound different, but it is. No, I get it. I get it. I, yeah. It, like it's how you establish boundaries with your uh, superstitions a, a little bit. Right. Or am I being disrespectful yes. by calling it a superstition? I mean, I think all of our beliefs are superstition. Okay. Like even, you know, we put in scientific parameters in place so that we could, like, if it can't be repeated, it probably is just something that we don't yet understand about whatever it is, or it's something we made up. Yeah. Um, it's not quote unquote real. So, you know, at the end of the day, there's a lot of things we don't understand. And so until we can say for sure, hey, that thing is like, 
not real is something we like are all experiencing in a weird way. Like I have no issue saying, you know what, you know, if it helps me, if it helps me understand the reality I'm experiencing better then it's real enough for me. Dude, you're like a fucking master chaos magician. I don't know if you know what that concept is. I've talked about it on the show. I'm not going to hijack. I'm fighting so hard not to just go off on a tangent right now. But all you described is essentially like how it's, I think it's like what I think is a healthy way of dealing with like belief and faith and stuff. Cause it's kind of hard to just be like, Oh, I have no, you know, like atheists, bro. I'm not, uh, I'm not so anti-atheist. I, but <laughs> it. I don't get it. It's just, it's the certainty is like, mind-boggling yeah yeah like how are you so sure (laughs) Uh, okay so i'm gonna rein us back in yeah because i like like i said i have a virgo moon and i was like i got i got you i am ready i'm like ready for you okay let's talk about stripes okay how do you feel about stripes like what do you know about the history of stripes like as Did a, you know, there was a history of stripes. <laughs> as a, as a, well, I'm in, when you say stripes, I'm thinking of it. Like it triggers a lot of things, but uh, I'm going to simplify it and think of it as a pattern on cloth, because I'm thinking like okay. lines could also be stripes. First thing was thinking about the way that I draw in cross hatching, but it, uh, I mean, I'm sure there's there's a history to it. That's uh, that makes sense. What are, is the history? And okay, what is stripes so, first? <laughs> what are you referring to? Yeah, okay. So first things first, I want to tell the listeners that I am a fiber artist. Mm-hmm. And so uh, everything I'm going to talk about is going to relate back to materiality and fabric. Okay. Um, and I, because I, I say that because I think it's important. Like, you know this because you've mm-hmm. seen my work. Yeah, no, um, absolutely. And then um, also, but you so, also photograph very well. I don't want people to think that, like, and I think that that comes from your origins in the fashion industry, right? You also have very good uh, yeah, studio a, photography yeah, I skills. Fashion, um, I have a fashion background and, um, you know, it, it's like, it's not uh, for nothing that we met in Rakim's stream because... Um, I discovered Rakim on Tumblr years and years and years ago mm-hmm. and was like, wow, this is like beautiful work. And like, I look up to Rakim. Yeah. Yeah. And so I look up to Rakim. Uh, their work, <laughs> uh, it definitely inspired me to get into the studio and photograph myself. Uh huh. Um, oh, also so you weren't like, doing, you I, weren't doing that until you saw his stuff. No, well, I wasn't doing visual art. Oh, okay. Um, I, I, I didn't, I mean, I saw, I, I, obviously there's the similarity in that you guys are both photographing yourselves, but I think you're, you, you know, it's less, your stuff is less fantasy based. It's a lot more, uh, in, or it's not intimate, but it's a lot more, um, the mood is different, I would say. Yeah. I, the personality you know, I, is different. I, I only, yeah. I mean, I only say that because like, I, I like to reference who I'm referencing mm-hmm. <laughs> in my work because I think, you know, once I start saying who my work is inspired by, if you look at their art, you can see it. Yeah. But by by no means am I like copying and pasting. No, that's what I, um, I, I mean. I definitely wanted to give you that credit. I did like that's you. that's my point. It. Like that's that's exactly my point. I mean, you you guys have similar backgrounds, but very different. Uh, the end result is different because I, I think he also did have a background in, in fashion. Um, yes. I find him inspiring just because, you know, as someone who tries to be pretty open about things on the podcast, I mean, that 
man is very open with himself and very kind. And it's really hard to like uh, find people like that, that are, uh, are doing yes, well, but are actually so. very generous people. It's fucking mind blowing. I almost don't think, I mean, I, it's not that I don't trust him, but it's like, I almost think I'm dreaming, <laughs> you know, when, when I interact uh, with people like yes. that. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's very unreal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah. And so, the reason I bring up stripes is because like the way that I approach visual art is like, what, what does this in, uh, evoke for the audience? Mm-hmm. So I also have a background in costume design. Um, I studied that in college for almost three years. And so that's the you way you said it, you went thing. to school in Georgia, you said, and Philadelphia, what schools just to, out of curiosity. Uh, so I, so I was actually in, Sorry, every time I went to school, I went somewhere that was like a city, but not really. Uh-huh. And so I went to Albright College in Reading, Pennsylvania, which like is a city, but like there's nothing really going on there because it's like economically depressed. Yeah. Are you going to say um, Savannah in Georgia? I did. I did. Okay. Go to Savannah. Because the way you described uh, it, I mean, what other city in Georgia? <laughs> it's not a city, but it is a city. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, Savannah is, like, not really a city. Like, even people who live there are like, this is not really a city. Yeah. So, yeah, so I went to Savannah College of Art and Design, where I first studied fashion, but then discovered fibers. Mm -hmm. And so that, I think, really energized a lot of the work that I'm doing. And so now let's bring it back to stripes. Yeah. So, yeah, so I'm talking about stripes on clothing because I – read this book that I have near me so I can reference it mm-hmm. um, called The Devil's Cloth, A History of Stripes Okay, by Michel Pasteur. And in this book, which is translated from French, he's talking about how stripes have been used to kind of use as differentiation for different purposes, like both positive and negative, but primarily negative. Okay. You know, think about the kind of classic, like almost comical prison uniforms, that white and um, black stripe. Mm -hmm. He also talks about how um, like stripes don't really happen a whole ton in nature. And so when we see it in nature, we're first kind of like repulsed by it because it like it surpasses our understanding. Um, Then at the same point in time, we also have like a reference for it, which is why like we love zebras so much and tigers. And we're like, Mm -hmm. Because it just does not happen that often in nature. And so with kind of this history of stripes, it's, you know, how have we how have we gotten from, you know, the stripe as signifier of difference and um, quote unquote evil and deviance to now where, you know, stripes are kind of, well, they're kind of have a multifaceted purpose. Like, like all of those same signifi- uh, signifiers are there. Um, and so when he starts the book, he talks about like Judas and how artists depict him in striped clothing. Um, and then he also talks about kind of how stripes changed after the American revolution and then um, nautical stripes. How did they change it? Do you, do you remember how they changed after the American revolution? Uh, I mean, you can pretty, I mean, Pretty much, you can kind of um, infer there. It's it becomes about um, revolution and change, and you know the stripes and the flag. Okay, and, all right, 
Sorry. All, like all basically everything. Well, no, I mean, it's not, I mean, it's not obvious. I mean, once I say it, it's obvious. But, yeah, 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 yeah. No. <laughs> um, you can kind of like follow that. Like you really, like you can really, like it's, it's not as like woo woo as it sounds. Like, no, no, not at all. It's not, it's not so like, oh, like, you know, I'm like revealing some deep truth. It's just like, it's a very like, I mean, it's also, you know, it's, it's also, you know, not a science like he's making these links and like you either can believe them or not um is it when was this book written uh, i think it was published in 2017 oh okay so this is recent all right oh no just kidding wait so the original was actually published in 91 Ooh. so it's actually an old book but this is excuse me I mean, I like to think that I am, you know, still young and spry, but this book came out the same time, the same year I was born. So, yeah, uh, and I, so and yeah, you're so 11 years younger than me. So, I was thinking old book like it was written during the industrial revolution and, you know, because no, uh, it's uh, French, that's where my I brain did, brain went. No. <laughs> so the translation came out in 2001. So, okay. we couldn't have read it in 91. Um <laughs> And so then he also talks about the fact that we, for a long time, only liked clothing um, that would touch our bodies most intimately as like white or undyed fabric and um, how swimsuits couldn't be white because of their function. Like Mm -hmm. it's very hard to get a white fabric not to be sheer once it's wet. And so the stripes are to be used to kind of protect the body from being um, obscene in a way. Mm-hmm. And so then he also talks about um, color was being seen as kind of like, um, in a way, kind of like dirtying the body. Um, and when you have clothing that's kind of touching your skin, you want to feel clean and you want to there's also kind of this belief that, you know, the, the purity of the fabric is like protecting you uh, kind of from like evil spirits. And so kind of the color is like inviting it. And so you like with the stripe, you're starting to kind of um, blend those two ideas. And so the white of the fabric is starting to kind of purify the color and while the color is, in a way kind of muddying the white or the purity mm. and um, you're getting this like balance. And so the reason I'm bringing all of this up is because like, that is how I kind of do work is, you know, what do these visual signifiers mean and how can I use them to my advantage? Mm-hmm. So, so specifically with stripes, how, how is that a manifest? Cause I am actually thinking, I'm trying to remember Are there pieces that have stripes or is this just an example or is this something that you're working with now? I'm just based on, based on what I've seen on your website. It's, uh, is why I'm asking. So if you go to my Instagram, there's some weavings. Um, Okay. Well, actually there's a ton of weavings that are striped um, because I'm working on this series. So this is a new, um, a new body that you're, that you're uh, getting into. Yes. Okay, cool. Uh, yeah, so, uh, so in um, the fall, I'm going to be giving a uh, lecture during the Biennial Textile Society of America Symposium, where I'm going to be talking about uh, masculinity. 
Uh-huh. And so I set out to do these weavings inspired by uh, men's suiting fabrics and men's stripes. And so I set out to read this book. I mean, I already was kind of working with stripes in other projects, um, other weaving projects specifically, but I was not necessarily doing it in this way, like for this purpose. It was just kind of like a means to an end uh, Mm -hmm. visually. And so now I'm like purposefully doing it to talk about, basically to talk about uh, uh, variants, you know, because I I talk about queerness and um, blackness and gender queerness um, in my work. And so to kind of use our preconceived notions of kind of the masculine, the kind of idealized masculinity of um, kind of white collar work. Mm -hmm. What is known as kind of the benevolent patriarch. Yeah. So all of those ideas I'm trying to kind of grapple with in terms of like, how do we think about gender and how do we think about race and gender together? Mm -hmm. What uh, the weavings that I've seen on the, on the website, the evolution is, is, is transitioning into something where the materials have the meaning in them, but they're not necessarily as overtly performative of what their context is. Is that, is, 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 am I reading that right? Or am I mistaken? Uh, I wouldn't necessarily say it that way. Okay. Uh, I mean, I think that that's kind of the difficulty of viewing work online. Absolutely. Um, because cause I don't want it to sound like the materials are not always doing that for me. Uh, I think it's harder to see that when there's so much else going on. Oh, no, no, no. Um, yeah, yeah, no. I mean, I mean, it seems like you're focusing on one aspect of your previous um, approaches, right? Like, whereas... These this is more focused. I definitely I would say that the the head the head wraps they're head wraps right or they're head pieces. Head pieces, yeah. Sorry, head pieces. So so I, what I would say is that like I'm I'm actually not even I'm just talking more about uh, refining your process right now, and it seems like now you're mm. you're you're pinpointing on a specific area, which is like normal, right? I think that you, you you're like zooming in on something, which is interesting, but, um, no, I relate to that too. Like where, where now, like, like you said, now the focus is more on, or it, now there's less going on. So you can focus specifically on one aspect of it. Is that, I think that that's fair. I think that that is actually, um, because part of it is like, you know, I was in grad school, Mm -hmm. excuse me, and I had access to different equipment. And so, Originally, when I first started weaving for visual art, I was using a loom that could literally do anything um, in terms of like what, like in terms of patterning on the fabric. And so like, if you look at any of the weavings I have, there's like text, there's different yarns, there's different, uh, there's just like a lot of different things going on Mm -hmm. that now I have in my studio a, um, four shaft loom which basically means like you can put your 
basically the shafts tell the threads what to do. And so in order to get any kind of patterning, you have to set each shaft to lift a certain number of threads. And so basically the more shafts you have, the more complicated a pattern you can get. Mm -hmm. And so in graduate school, I was using a computer that could pick up each thread individually. And there were (laughs) like 2,400 threads. Whereas now I have four shafts, which means I have a very like in comparison, it's like, I can only move 1% of yeah. my threads in comparison to that. And so is it, is, you know, is the tactile experience different since you're not using the computer or is it pretty similar? It's really, I wouldn't say the tactile experience is different. I'd say the, um, the thought process is different Okay. because I don't have to think as much when I'm using a computer. Yeah. Really the computer is the brain part. Uh huh. Like I think that when people hear like, oh, there's a computer involved, it's, it does it for you. Like, no, um, there are looms where everything is computerized. But the one that I was working on, I still had to weave it myself. The okay, computer okay. just controlled what the next step was. So I didn't have to think about, you know, keep track of throwing a shuttle, you know, 2,000 times. Yeah. So, and so basically what I'm saying is that the – like the reason I'm working more simply now is basically it is that the ideas are more refined. Yes. But it's also a limitation based on what I have available to me. And it's also like a good thing because now I get to go back to basics and teach myself how to think, how to basically distill the ideas to as simple as possible. Uh huh. And, and essentially right now you're working, you said with, um, male suit patterns right yes and 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 patterns like that so it deals with masculinity in that sense yes so where do you want to take us next basically uh i want to get into like you know what 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 does it mean to have racialized gender um, because I am reading um, Bell Hooks, mm-hmm. um, We Real Cool, Black Men and Masculinity. And in that book, she talks about essentially how black masculinity was impacted by chattel slavery. Um, What's chattel? Kind of, so that, that's the kind of slavery that we had here. Okay. Um, I've never heard that term. What, what, what does chattel mean? It sounds like I mean, it, really offensive. I mean, it. Uh, well, I mean, <laughs> I don't. I don't think that the the the, the phrasing is offensive. I think the concept, the, the institution, is is, is is offensive. But chattel just. I mean, because it's because it, it, it basically you know, for the most part, before that, slavery was like prisoners of war. Ah, um, uh, okay. You know, people. You know, the the, the losers. Um, and chattel slavery basically was, you know, treating people like chattel, people, treating people like animals. Okay. So um, that, so, so it is, as, it is related as, to animals. Property. Yes. Cause I know I've heard that fucking word. I've just never heard it in that context. And uh, yes. Yeah. So yes. thank you for so, teaching me that. I didn't, I actually uh, didn't know no that problem. that distinction. I mean, I, I'm sorry that you, that it is a thing that you have to teach, but I didn't know that. Uh, yeah. So so basically we're talking about, you know, 
this kind of this this ruling class, this this uh, you know quote unquote white elite, you know, in the creation of whiteness and in the creation of maleness, teaching these people who don't have access to really either what it means to be men. Mm-hmm. And I think that like, it's kind of like a, it's a kind of like a failed situation either way. Like we're all kind of invested in, in masculinity in gender in maleness. But if you're kind of looking at, you know, what does it mean to be a man who actually has access to that? I mean, we're talking about, you know, our, our kind of good masculinity is, um, and I'm using that in quotes, you know, a provider, protector, takes care of the family, has a family, you know, like, like what are these concepts about? And -hmm. it's like, if you are saying to black people, you know, to be a good man is to be a good provider, but we can't hire you. We can't give you jobs. You know, what does that mean? Or, you know, we hire you for like menial labor where you can barely, you know, make ends meet. Like, what does that mean? Or, you know, the opposite of that, if, you know, we hire you and don't really pay you a lot, you're probably going to work really hard because you know that to be a man is to be a provider. Mm. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, She also talks about that for a lot of black families, the women were able to get jobs and they became the breadwinners because the men couldn't get hired, but the women could be hired as like maids, nannies. This is after slavery. Menial labor. Yes. Okay. You know, they could be hired for certain jobs. So they were able to bring money into the household, but the men still controlled how that money was used. And so, Mm. you know, we're talking about, you know, I think that a lot of times when we talk about gender, we divorce it from race and we, we can't like there are, first of all, like culture, just in general, culturally, there are going to be differences in how gender operates and how, how it actually functions in different communities. But then when you're talking about like race and gender, there are different ways that it shows up. And so the whole reason I kind of started to think about this is because there was an article um, that was published uh, years and years and years ago at this point, um, on Afropunk, mm-hmm. um, called my gender is black. And I was like, wow, what a resonance. Like yeah. reading that, I was like, yeah, this makes sense. Like, it's like, you know, I already don't have access to gen. Like I don't have access to what we're, what we're think what we think about as traditional gender roles because I'm black. Like yeah. I perform gender differently. It's going to happen differently. And like, we already kind of think that, like, if you think about like, you know, the Mandingo and like all these ideas about, you know, the black body, um, what's the, the man- sorry, body, I know like, the hyper- Mandingo. What's that? Like this, like this, like hyper, like basically negative native stereotype of black men, um, uh, as like sexually deviant and sexually bestial and because it, it's this whole myth that like, you know, black men are insatiably sexual and they uh-huh. want to deflower virginal white women. Like they want to soil your white women. Like it, it, it's all wrapped up in these like antebellum ideas of what, of like why we need to subjugate black people. Uh-huh. You know, all of these, all of these myths are related. Like these are gendered racialized. These are racialized gendered myths. But racialized the, gendered ideas. And the Mandingo comes from who established the Mandingo as a concept? 
I'm just trying to make sure I understand it. Now, is I that, can't give you the specific back. The specific, but is it, is like, it, is it, no, no, I mean, I mean, did you say that it was uh, a, um, a Native American one or did I mishear you? No, I'm talking, no, 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 no. No, that no, it no. was something that white people said about Native people. Yeah, like Native Africans. Like Native, okay, like, all right. Sorry, I just want to make sure in, I fucking in, got this. As bef- in like, yeah. as in like Africans, like if we, basically like if we did not rescue Africans from their native habitat, they would not be civilized. Okay, yeah, no, I've j- yeah, uh, I mean, I think you're definitely native okay. as in like from a place, from not a place. Yeah, yeah. no, no, no. Man. I'm changing my point now, and I want to say that like I don't think any queer person that's been on the show has talked about this stuff. So <laughs> you're pretty much covered. I like, and I'm learning a lot. I, uh, I mean, not things that I didn't completely know about, but t- terminology that is uh, is maybe not not something that my audience has gotten that into. So I appreciate this shit. And I, and I'm sorry if I keep getting shocked by things that like I should know, but like that, you know, I it's thought, okay because yeah, yeah, you know what? Go ahead. You know what? There was a point in like when I was doing uh, my thesis, which was not necessarily about this specifically where I was just like, oh, I don't feel like I have anything to say because everyone knows this. And it's like, no, they don't. <laughs> no, they fucking don't. I don't. I, you, you, you keep uh, uh, telling me shit that I need to know. So go ahead. So I'm sorry. I can, and I keep derailing you with my ignorance, which is what, why I'm frustrated with the way that things are going. Like, Because no, <laughs> you have something. I, like, we're going to go a little bit longer than usual because I, I, I think that you need time to say things. So anyway, go ahead. And I need time to understand. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully you can edit out where I like. No, no, you are off. fucking. You're killing um, it. I'm. I'm the one that's breaking your flow up just because I don't. I'm like. I'm. So, you're saying things, and I'm like, wait, what? You know, go ahead, finish. Uh, if, uh, and yeah, and so, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, it's fine. And so, um, basically, the reason I'm thinking about all of these things in terms of masculinity is because I never necessarily felt a huge attachment to masculinity. Um, I was raised by uh, my mother and my grandmother. And so Mm. I wouldn't necessarily say that I had a whole ton of access to femininity, but I definitely have a different appreciation for femininity than I do for, um, that I do an understanding of masculinity. And so in a lot of ways, I think I'm trying to unpack these things because especially um especially because we say oh race is a social construct gender is a social construct okay well yes and like what does that mean like what how do we actually get to talk about these things and so what are those what what is the social contract that we've signed to create these to create race to create gender um to create queerness because especially as we start to quote unquote accept these things into the norm. What does that actually do to those concepts? You know, because at the end of the day, like if men can now, you know, paint their nails, can wear makeup, can wear skirts, can, you know, start to be, to kind of have more freedom, if you will, what does that do to our conversations around gender and race and who actually gets to, you know, do all of those things because, you know, if you type in, you know, androgynous person, 
who's going to pop up? Is it going to be, you know, any person of color? Are they going to be black? Are they going to be dark skinned? Are they going to be fat? Like, you know, these Mm. are, you know, saying something as a construct does not actually do anything. If you don't actually like interrogate what that means. Yeah. That's crazy. I mean, I don't have anything. I, I, I could paraphrase and so that you understand that I understand it. That's basically the only thing I have to contribute at this point. No, <laughs> I'm just I mean, listening. I'm just, like, <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah. just like trying to get to a place where like I feel like there's understanding in terms of like, you know, the people that are not in the conversation with us right now, like yeah, the, yeah. the listener at home or in the car or at work because that's where I listen to podcasts. Uh-huh. But okay, so I do um, want to relate all of this back to my work. Okay. Because I think – so. The other thing I also probably should have said is like, I'm a writer, I'm a scholar, I'm a theorist. Uh Um, Even though I don't come from that background, it's the liberal arts education that I had. The writing is super important to me and the reading is super important to me, which is why, you know, I'm reading the history of stripes. Like, what does that have to, like, yes, it, yes, it has to do with visual art, but in reality, like I could make visual art without reading the history of stripes. So like, you know, what does this all mean? Mm -hmm. And so like when I make work, these are the conversations I'm having with myself. As an example, I had a really hard time being gay, you know, shocker. You know, my stepdad basically said to me, I'm going to be on my knees praying for you until the day I die, which mm-hmm. was really hurtful. And it, and it was partially hurtful because like to him, that was love. Yeah. And so I wrote a whole poem about that experience. And in that, I thought about like religion and I thought about sex and I thought about, you know, bondage and, 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 and devotion. And so I, I wrote this poem, um, called, uh, I think it's called altarpiece. Mm-hmm. And then I made a piece called altarpiece as well that uses that poem. And, um, I wove it with strips of, uh, metallic leather and cotton and you know the poem is in there and it's just like this kind of like cathedral window idea Mm -hmm. which it is on my instagram you can scroll down and look at that uh it is still on there cool but all of that is having a lot of different conversations and if you look at the piece it looks simple but i think that you know in person you can understand all of that uh, yeah, uh, so it's, in, it's complicated. in person, you understand all of uh, what specifically the kind of all of those all of those references, like yeah. like where where I'm coming from with kind of that that conversation, and it, and I think it goes back to what the visual cues are. Uh huh. So there's also a book um, about ornamentation and the ornate as. Um, signifier of queerness and femininity and kind of our, our concepts around frivolity. Uh-huh. I mean, if you think about kind of like the ideas behind minimalist art, a lot of those ideas are also tied up in like masculine ideas of like utility. Interesting. You know, we, yeah. We have, to strip, we have to strip it down to its most simple form. That is, um, yeah. Stronger. I never thought of, I never thought of that, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, because, Basically, it's it's also about like time. The ornate is a waste of time. Mm-hmm. Like why? Like why spend all this time making this like frivolous piece when you could make a bunch of a utilitarian piece? Like it, it. All these concepts are kind of going back and forth. It's like, 
And it, that's why I think it's hard to talk about things like femininity and masculinity because it's like we bury all of that in other language. It's like, well, you know, it's, it's not so much about that being feminine or masculine. It's about, you know, the time spent on it. It's like, well, sure. Like, mm-hmm. But like it's, you're also saying what's worth time and what isn't worth time. Like that's still a conversation of value. Yeah. Uh, and so it sounds like I'm jumping around a little bit, but like that's that is how I make work, though. Yeah, like, yeah. It is like this back and forth. It's like you know, what was my lived experience? How does that fit within the context of how I experience society? Because there's a lot of different experiences. And then like, what are the visual cues to have that conversation? Um, and so that's why there's a lot of the work is like you know glittered and colored and you know, died. And there, there's a lot of process work uh-huh. that deals with materiality. Uh, there's a yeah. lot of pieces where how it's done is as much of the art as what it ends up looking like. So, uh, it, it like, do you have an example of that so that I can visualize it? Yes. So I have a, um, weaving that is done on the, uh, digitalized loom. Uh, it's called a jacquard loom. And so, um, when weaving, you have warp and weft. And so the warp is the fat is the yarns that are on the loom mm-hmm. and the weft, the yarn that you put, um, that you weave crossways. Yes. That you weave. And so I wove, uh, the weft as a polyester yarn. Mm-hmm. And um, then when I took it off the loom, I used a fiber reactive dye that only dyes the um, black cotton or the cotton black. Um, and so there's a red and black piece that is done that way. Mm-hmm. And then there's also another piece where I wove some wool and cotton together because they take the dye differently because one is a protein fiber and one is a cellulose fiber. Mm. And so with all of that you know, dye work, I'm talking about the construct of race. Yeah. Like, you know, how do we make race? We decided that people had different looks and from the way that they looked, we decided that genetically they must be so different from other people. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, that's how we come up with race. And then also how does race change over time? Because we have a lot of people now who are considered white who were not considered white 50 years ago. My Italian brothers. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I mean, basically... I'm an olive Everyone skin. Yeah. My favorite is when white people go to war over their differences. Like, uh, I mean, not not like actual war, but like uh, with the. I think that in the the Swedes and the Swedish and the fucking Finns and all they all talk mad shit about each other. And I'm like, bro, your space isn't even bigger than America <laughs> combined. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. It's um, like Kansas fighting with fucking Arkansas, you know. But I mean, I mean, but that, but that is, that is the construction of race though. Like race in America is different from race. Yeah. Uh, and, and by America, I mean, the United States of America is different from even race, you know, in, in Canada and, and especially yeah. race in like places like Africa, the continent, which has, you know, 50 plus countries. Like, of course, race is going to be different there. Like, you know, like, like, like all of the, like, that's why it's important to kind of specify the conversation you're trying to have. Um, and so, like, for me, I try to make sure that it is explicit that this is my experience and I'm relating it to my history. Yeah. As opposed to, like, a broad sweeping statement about race. And... 
Right. Because I mean, like, I, I mean, I mean, granted there are broad conversations that can be had and I, you know, and I've had them, but even within that broad space, I'm like, listen, like, this is my lens of history because it's like, there are myriad ways to be black. There are myriad ways to be queer. And, and I think I, that sometimes, go ahead. I'm not, sorry. And I think that when you take that approach where it's more personalized, it's more relatable instead of it, like being like, instead of making a piece about institutional racism, right. Uh, making work about where, where it's relatable on an interpersonal level, I think humanizes, uh, the artist in this case. And I hate the way right. I, I hate the fucking terminology I'm using <laughs> the artist, but you get what I'm saying. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, I, you know, the word that I like that you use is humanize. Yeah. Um, because I think that that is kind of the difficulty of some art. Like, I, I, I think from a collector's standpoint, sometimes they're way too focused on collecting trauma. Yes. Um, <clears throat> and like for me, like, and, and, the, and that was one of the first things I said, like, the work has to be beautiful. Yeah. Like. Like that, like that, like if there, like if there, if it does not accomplish that first parameter, then it's not done. Like it needs to be something that is a beautiful piece of work. Yeah, and like everything else has to kind of come after, simply because like that is the point of art is to be enjoyed. Yeah, even if it also is supposed to teach, or or relate, or or do anything else, it first needs to be worth looking at. Um, well, I also not to say that it's not traumatic pieces that are worth looking at. It's just that sometimes it gets really like, what's well, like, it's like the YouTube algorithm, right? It's, it's almost, and you know, the, one of the things that you said, it, uh, it, it triggered me in this, in the sense of like the, um, the commodification of trauma, so that you can be a consumer that sympathizes. That's like basically the NPR model. And uh, mm. I, I, I struggle with that one a lot because you have a lot of, you know, you can always go to uh, a perfect example is NPR did a story and I don't, I'm not going to get into the Venezuela situation, but you can basically take a picture of any poor people and spin a narrative and to, and, and, tell their experience in a way that is entertaining and that's not necessarily bringing awareness to a situation that's more massaging your own um it's the same thing as like watching a dramatic tv show you're having emotions and 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 things like that so i actually find that shit like i think npr is like one of the most problematic things that liberals associate with that that have good intentions i don't know what are your thoughts on that i i, I just find it you know they the way that i mean they, that is that sorry. is the model that we that is one of the models that we have um in this country and like when we're when you're talking about that to me specifically i'm thinking about like lynching yeah um and and the visual history that that has left behind granted not all photography is art but i think that when you think about the fact that you know to someone that was art enough to keep a souvenir of. Oh yeah. Um, um, through photographs. You have know, you have you ever seen that? And have you seen the the book Without Sanctuary? No, I haven't. Uh, it's, it's a book that I saw when I was in college. I don't recommend going to see it because it's obviously incredibly violent. I it may be more appropriate to recommend to white people who aren't 
quite aware of the history, but like that, one of the things that was most impactful is that I read that book when I was in like my twenties. It's, it's, it's those, it, they, they sent out a, a request for all these souvenirs that you're talking about, these postcards of lynchings and stuff like that. And they, 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 no questions asked, just submit them. You know, they were trying to compile them so they can make this fucking awful book. I mean, I, it, the intention is, is good and I, and I'm not like shitting on the book, but it's, it's a book of evil, right? Um, it's, it's an important book that it exists and it, it, it had an impact on me, but yeah, I mean, you really get to see like, this was like a fucking weekend barbecue thing. Yeah. And I mean, that is, that has not gone away. I mean, that's what we're seeing right now. Um, but we, but we, what we do here is no different than what we do other places. Yeah, hundred um, percent. I mean, and that you know, I don't, I don't talk about that necessarily in my work or as an artist. But you know, I try to keep that in mind as a person. Like, what we do here is no different than what we're doing other places, and what we do other places is not different than what we do here. Um, and it's just that is, I think, the difficulty. Of, well, like, of, of being here. What What do you think specifically about that fetishization of suffering, though? Specifically, not it doesn't have to be necessarily if you don't agree with an NPR being the thing, but that's that's kind of the the thing that that. Uh, I mean, I'm already um, very cautious of well-intentioned white people. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I grew up with them. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, you know. I think that it's it's hard. I think that for the most part, there's never really a good reason to do it. I think that I think it's complicated uh-huh. because I'm thinking about like the Vietnam War and how journalism really helped to contextualize it, uh-huh. and, and that that there are times that it actually is necessary to show violence Uh because I'm also thinking about the civil rights movement when they were sicking dogs and hoses on people like that actually did impact the hearts and minds of those who were willing to empathize with people. But I don't, but there are also people who will never empathize, who will never humanize other people. And they take joy in seeing suffering and they take joy in knowing that those images hurt the people who look like the people in those photos. Yeah. Um, and like, you know, that is why, like, I don't look at any of that stuff. Like it is whether or not it's a person that looks like me or not. I'm just like, this is a human being. And it like really hurts to think that there are people who have to suffer that sort of, um, indignity and um, violence and there are people who would enact that kind of indignity and um, violence and I I definitely agree with you on journalism and 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 I want to make that distinction and and here's how I want to do it like I I, again I don't disagree with any like it is important for people to see this shit and we've talked a little bit about the show uh, on the show about how how to approach even just like all these snuff films that are going on that it's important for people to see, but how do you share them and things like that? But what I would say about 
about NPR specifically. I'm singling them out, and I'm singling out MSNBC. I'm not talking about uh, journalism in general. I'm talking about a particular kind of journalism, which is not necessarily... Like, for example, the, um, the people that listen to NPR don't give a shit that Julian Assange is in is being prosecuted for doing exactly what you said, you know, like for, so a lot of people that there's a comfort level with the, there's like a packaging that needs to happen for them to even engage mm. in the horrors. And so with NPR, I think that a lot of times what happens is that they fucking, the, the base premise of the pot of the, the, the whole radio station is that, uh, it, it functions from that white supremacist ideal of um, what's it called uh, American exceptionalism, where like mm. you know it's never they're never documenting the horrible things that we're doing to people. They document the horrible things the villains are doing, the ones that we need to change. The, the you know mm. the Venezuelas that don't want to give oil to BP, which underwrites uh, NPR. You know, the fucking like the Waltons give money to NPR. And so what I think it, it, it is so pernicious about that is that it's this system of co-opting good intentions and w- w- good meaning white people. But then it only just becomes fetish like uh, tragedy porn. Tragedy porn mm. is, I think, what I would describe it as. So, I mean, I 100% agree with you. I, and I think that we're 100%. I just, and uh, like what I'm re- responding to is that mentality that you brought up in Collectors, where they're fetishizing the suffering, right? Where it's like, um, I'm a good person because I own this piece, but I didn't really do anything. I'm a good person because right. I listen to NPR, but I'm really not doing anything. I just know that people are dying. And, and I, and right, I, I mean, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. And I mean, that's like kind of how I feel about kind of like allyship. Yeah. Um, like, it, like it's easy to find for me during February and June, but the rest of the year it's kind of like crickets. Yeah. So it's like, you know, how are you, like if you actually are resonating with what I do and you actually want to have the conversations I'm having, like you need to, create space for other people that look like me when you have the opportunity and you also need to support that work year round. Like it can't just be, you know, during black history month, here's our black artists during pride month. Here's our queer artists. Like that's lazy and it's not actually accomplishing anything. Yeah. Yeah, it's it, it's a crazy thing. Do you have another another hopping point? I think we've exhausted this <laughs> area, but I'm definitely um, enjoying the conversation. If we I, like, we're, we're I mean, we're over an hour, but we're, I'm happy to keep talking to you for a little while longer. Well, I want I if mean, you if you have thoughts you need to finish and anything like that. I mean, no, I mean, I, I kind of thought I would was going to get on here and talk about intersectionality, which is why I had that like disclaimer at the beginning, but we didn't actually end up necessarily going there. Mm-hmm. 
We can talk but, about that though. I mean, I I'm look. I don't want to hang up because I'm enjoying myself and I feel like I'm learning oh, quite a yeah, bit. Yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> yeah, 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 no, we can we can talk about it. So, I wrote my thesis um, for graduate school on intersectionality, and um, really, really, what I'm not talking about is. So I want to first of all give respect to Kimberly Crenshaw for coining the phrase intersectionality mm-hmm. and how she was talking about intersectionality related to um, her experiences with the law and how people at the mar- at the intersections, um, the most marginalized people, were not necessarily protected by certain laws. Mm-hmm. And she specifically was talking about um, a black woman who <clears throat> wanted to sue for discrimination to a company for discrimination because she wasn't hired for being a black woman. But the judge basically said she could either sue for sexism or racism. Um, <laughs> not, and um, uh, Let know, me guess. This guy is the fucking whitest judge. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure. And, um, you know, and the company hired women as like receptionists and like white women, excuse me. And, like, black men as, like, janitors. Yeah. And so it's, like, you know, that's how she's conceptualizing intersectionality. And I want to start there because I think the way that we use intersectionality in the kind of um, pop culture paradigm is not actually helpful or useful. Mm-hmm. Because it just becomes, like, well, I have all these identities, so you can't tell me shit. And it's, like, mm, that's not what intersectionality is or about. And I also hate the idea of intersectional feminism because it's like, if it's actually feminism, why do you need a signifier? Like, like it just does not make sense. Um, Although it's because of the other feminists that you need that signifier. (laughs) Well, I mean, I don't want to get into that because as someone who was assigned male at birth, it's going to come off as like women hating. Oh, wait. So, uh, like, what, 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 how do you, whole, since you bring you, you, since you bring what you were at sign of birth, what, what, how do you identify? So I am non-binary. Non-binary. Okay. And, um, for the ease of other people, I use they, them pronouns, but in reality I would prefer just my name, um, Andre. So, okay. but I, I recognize that it is difficult in, um, our language to not use, um, Second uh, pronouns, uh, mm. secondary pronouns. But anyway, back to intersectionality. Yeah, yeah. I, so the way that I wanted to talk about intersectionality is pretty much um, about the matrix of identity. So there, I read a thesis by Dr. Sheena Howard, and she talks about the matrix of identity because she wrote about black lesbians And it really started to change the way that I was thinking about intersectionality because intersectionality is more so about intersecting intersecting oppressions, Mm. whereas the matrix of identity allows space for power to be talked about. And that is the conversation we are not having enough, is how do your marginalizations, how are they impacted by how when they intersect with power? So, for example, like, White gay men who are cis are still white and mm-hmm. men and cis. The only marginalization they have is queerness. No. And it's not to downplay that like they don't have an experience that is, you know, at the margins, but because they have all these other 
identities that are aligned with power, they are able to operate in a very different fashion than someone who has way more marginalizations than they do identities within power. Someone like a Peter Thiel. Do you know who that is? I don't is? know who that is. All right. <laughs> He's a very problematic billionaire. Well, billionaires are problematic. Or right, maybe he's a millionaire. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> but I think about like someone like Ed Buck. Like that oh, is, you know, Okay, he's not <laughs> Peter Thiel is nowhere near Ed Buck. <laughs> Just for liability I mean, reasons. That's fine. I don't want to imply that, you know, this person who I don't know is, but like that's who I think of is like, you know, <laughs> Yeah, that Ed Buck is fucking and, and heinous. Like, and like, and, you know, and like I mean and like they don't, you know, he's not being attacked. Well, I don't want to say attacked, but he's not really being held accountable because he's rich. Yeah. He's a, a and because he's man, friends with Hillary cis, Clinton. And he's exactly, he's <laughs> friends with people in power and yeah. he donates to people in power. And for people who don't, who the name is like kind of vaguely there, Ed Buck is the guy that was shooting up black men with heroin and a couple of them died. And he's a rich donor for the Democrats. Right? Yes. Okay. Yes, yes. I'm, I, he's I, a I, yeah, he's a he's a straight up <laughs> oh. fucking murderer. He's got like that's the weirdest fetish too. Anyway, we don't have to get into that. Yeah, so so the, so yeah, so the, those are the conversations I want to have because it's like because like that's that's the whole concept of privilege. Like when we talk about like white privilege, like and 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 I think that it creates better conversations because it's like for people who are marginalized and have privilege, like it can be difficult to talk about. Yeah. So like, for example, like I, if I walk down the street because I am a large black assumed man and I have a beard, I have privilege like Mm -hmm. that, that, you know, whether or not that's how I want to be seen is irrelevant. Like I still am, I still have some power because I am seen as male. Yeah. I mean, and on the opposite side of that, like I'm being seen as a large black man. So like, my life is in danger. So like, you know, both things can exist at once and we have to be able to start to talk about how those intersecting experiences relate. And so as someone who is black and queer, of course I know what it means to live at a, at an intersection. Yeah. Uh, You actually reminded me, sorry, am I cutting your flow? No, go for it. Um, Cause uh, the, the, Guest of the show, uh, Abdiel Lopez, the, in the non-binary episode, we had had a really interesting conversation and he said something and afterwards he was like, you know, I'm actually really curious to know what people think. And I haven't been, I, I never got feedback on it, but it was the part where he was talking about how sometimes he's interacting with a woman and because he presents as male, uh, he, or I'm sorry, fuck man i already fucked this up because they present as male i'm sorry abdiel um oh okay you know what i listened to this episode so let me finish telling the story even though i fucked it up already and i again i'm sorry so they were saying that when they have a conversation or confrontation with a woman since they present as male the dynamic get a little problematic where it seems like it's a guy yelling at a woman and 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 I found that interesting because even they were not sure what the um, 
what what the end result like what the correct way to perceive that situation is so i mean i don't even know that i'm looking to resolve it but i just want to bring it up in terms of like one of those interesting intersectional situations that happens yeah i mean i think that this is complicated right yeah like I think in that specific experience uh, or specific situation, uh, I think you kind of have to go with what your heart is feeling. Like, because I think that in a lot of ways, women can kind of weaponize their womanhood against queer people. Yeah. Because I think that, like, granted, like, they can be perceived as male, but I think that they're still read as queer, probably. Mm hmm. And a lot of times, like, it can get into this really weird place where it's like, you know, like, yeah, you're a quote-unquote man, but you're queer. And so, like, you're, like, deviant. And mm -hmm. so me being a woman who is not that can also, like, hold some power over you. Like, I, I think it's a weird – it's, like, a weird thing. Like, it really just kind of depends because we're also talking about kind of, like, a hierarchy of um, oppression – Mm -hmm. In a lot of ways, because like, yeah, there are there are situations where gay men are going to have more power than straight women. But in some time, but in a lot of ways, like them being straight and female and, and woman is also having power over that. Like it, it's it's it, and I think that that's what's kind of difficult in those situations. Yeah. So I don't want to get into like the oppression Olympics, but like there is there are power differentials between marginalized groups. And I think that we have to be honest about that. Like, you know, cause it's, cause it is, because there's also like a lot of misogyny within the cis gay world. Like there's a yeah. lot of like ew China's and ew women. And it's like, <laughs> like, that, like you know, you're like hiding it in this, I'm a gay man thing. And it's like, no, that's just misogyny. Like, yeah. like it's not special. It's not new. Like you put some <laughs> glitter on misogyny. That's it. That's all. And it's also transphobic. Like there are gay men who have vaginas like enough. Yeah. And so I think in that situation, it, it is, it does create kind of difficulty. And, you know, and I want to bring it back to what I was kind of saying earlier about feminism. I think that we have, we need to start interrogating feminism for its roots and how some of the people who kind of started to create, you know, this, this framework of thinking about womanhood were, were, were interested in power and not necessarily interested in equality. Yeah. Uh, which is why we have to have signifiers for, you know, feminism. And I think that that is kind of my like apprehension in a lot of ways toward, you know, going into a fourth wave of feminism. It's like, we're going to reboot this shit again. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, if you didn't get it right in the third wave, like maybe there's other conversations to be had about, you know, what is womanness and what does it mean? Cause it's just like, you know, Dre, you're starting to sound an awful lot like a misogynist, man. I'm going to have to scrap you this whole episode. Oh my God. Stop. <laughs> I'm just, I mean, uh, no, no, it no, no, no. It feels like that sometimes though, because it's like, you know, it's just because it's like if there's no room to critique yeah um what womanhood is then 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 what are we actually talking about yeah um, because in the same sense we also like don't get me wrong i am much more invested in discussing what manhood is mostly because i think that it's 
it, it is more press, uh, prescient. It, it feels more necessary mm-hmm. um, because we haven't done it. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I mean, I, like, like, I don't want to erase, you know, the, the hundreds of years of what, you know, women have done to interrogate what womanness is. It just, what I, I guess what I'm basically trying to get at is specifically as a fiber artist, the history of fiber arts is very middle-class, very cis white heterosexual women. Yeah. Yes. There were some queer women. Yes. There were some black women, but primarily the experience has been very middle-class and white and it has exploited poor people, Mm. uh, poor women. Excuse me. I want to be specific. Poor women, women of color, like in the, in the fabrication of textiles. Correct. Okay. Like, and in the fiber, in the fabrication of the movement, like the, the 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 fiber and craft movement is very, was very 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 instrumental in creating the feminist movement. Like those yeah. artists had a large voice, and they were primarily white and straight. And I think that we need to contend with that. Is that you know power, the those with the most power within those marginalizations became the people to assimilate. Yeah. And, and and so those are the types of things. And that's what I'm trying to get at in terms of like why we should be talking about marginalization and power. Mm-hmm. Where do you lean politically in terms of like, not, not, we don't have to talk about specific political parties and stuff like that, but I just mean in, in, in terms of geopolitics, are you more of a leftist? Are you more of a rightist? I, I, I mean, and, and I, I ask, like, go ahead. I like to think of myself as a moderate, but like, I really just like, I think I th- I want to say I like to think of it that way is because I like to hear I like to hear people out on an individual level mm-hmm. but in reality because of my identities and what I believe in terms of like equality I am not a moderate at all in any in any in no place in the world would I be a moderate unfortunately yeah. No I I mean maybe in France uh, <laughs> I don't know they're so, they're they're so like, far to the left yeah, I, they're kind of, they're really um, problematic in terms of like religion, though. Yeah, they fucking no. I mean, Paris is a, is a shit show in terms of how they kept all the fucking uh, what's it called immigrants outside of the city. They they put all the projects on the outside. It's fucked up. We don't have to get into that. Actually, what I do want to ask you about though is because I mean I've been saying something on the show that I, I should probably run. You were like maybe one of the best people to run past this because you your intersection has both uh, things, which is that I feel like gay people have not had, and maybe queer people in general have not really had representation at the government level like we have. Um, whereas I know what it's like to have a fucking Marco Rubio. So like when, so, so the, the fact that he's Cuban means dick to me. Whereas I felt mm. like Buttigieg kind of had a little bit more steam behind him than he really, mer- oh. th- than was really like merited. And so, and, and so my concern, so one of the things that I'm worried about is that there, that, that the gay community since, they're they're so new to have being represented in politics are about to have their hearts broken over the next like couple decades because <laughs> there's nothing are like they? <laughs> are they though oh are there gonna be I good mean, good I, neoliberal well, gay uh people well, that ship jobs overseas well, listen <laughs> listen listen 
I'm sorry. I mean, am I being I, hostile? I, <laughs> no, 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 I, no. I just am like, I just am. Like, it's hard because as someone who like used to be like very pro voting and very like, you know, at least care about the like big elections. I'm just very like not interested anymore. Yeah. Uh, well, they've broken us after both of these elections. Like they just have like, cause I remember, first of all, in 2016, 2015 to 2016, it was laughable Yeah, that the Republican Party had 17 candidates. Yeah. Laughable. Hilarious. Like, to the point of, like, what is going on over there? And then they won. Uh-huh. And so we fast forward to now, we just had, we just saw, you know, even before the, the actual primaries, the actual Democratic primaries. Uh-huh. We just saw the most candidates I've ever seen in a presidential election in my life. Yeah. Like for Democrats. And I'm like, what? It's just very confusing to me. Yeah. Um, but anyway, to get back to the very specific, the, the, the specific question you're asking, I think it depends who you're, who, who's, who's being represented by what? Uh-huh. It's like Pete, Mayor Pete does not represent me. Yeah. Like, that's not the queer person that, like, I think about, when I think about queer representation in politics, I think about the many, like, trans women who are running for the first time and winning, trans men who are running for the first time and winning. I think a lot of those, like, mayoral races are looking much better than some of the, like, Senate and presidential races. Agreed. There, there's um, definitely, there was a little bit of a push recently for progressives. I'm always skeptical of progressives in the Democratic Party because we, right, like, you know, I'm sorry, uh, like, we we just had Ocasio-Cortez run on fundraising from people, and she's still voting with the corporate Democrats. So <laughs> it's like, well, now you're not taking corporate money, but you're still voting like a corporate Democrat, you know? And that's what I mean. Like, she's like the pinnacle of Latino representation, right? And she's been assimilated as well. It's upsetting. But, you know, in a, in a way, so it's, so it's twofold. So let me get back to Pete so, for a second. Go ahead. Yeah, Pete is very different. Like, he's very... He's if it, if I didn't see his husband, I think he was straight. Yeah. Like I think he might also just be a CIA gay, <laughs> gay for the CIA. I'm sorry, maybe like, that's very very controversial, but like he's so much of a spy that he's willing to. I don't know. <laughs> sorry. But I mean, but I mean, and, and that's and that's not to say like I'm policing someone else's gayness. Yeah. But when I think about like what is acceptable to the most people, I'm like, he's married. He's not loud. He's very understated. And like, that's fine. Like, that's probably who he is. But when I think about like someone who's going to like fight for the least of us, that's not who I think of. Yeah. On the other hand, I also don't believe that to get back to AOC, as she's affectionately called, I don't think that she should have to be the only Latinx representation. Excuse me. And it's, it's kind of unfair for her to have to kind of be the thing for everyone. And I, you know, and I think that that is, but I also think that that's the excuse we've used for Obama and he has turned out to be very disappointing post-presidency. Yeah. And so I, so 
as much as I like to talk about identity politics, I think that uh, the Democratic Party has relied on them a little bit too much. 100%. Um, in terms of like, you know, hey, we have coloreds. Like, that's pretty much <laughs> the, the draw. And I'm just like, that's racist. <laughs> like, exactly. Like, I mean, like, <laughs> it's, it's like really embarrassing. And it's like, because then, cause then in like the elections, it's like, well, the blacks didn't vote for us. I'm like, well, did you do something for the blacks? Like, yeah. like what are you actually doing for these communities that you think you have a right to our votes? And a right to our support. I got into an argument at a birthday party with this like like seventy year old white woman because <laughs> I was like, oh, I like don't really want to vote Democrat. And it's like, oh, you young people. Oh, oh man, I don't think and I'm then, ever voting then, Democrat and, again. And then like, and like, and it's easy for white people to say, well, the greater good. And I'm like, okay, hey girl, let me tell you how that has not worked for me yet. Yeah, like. Seriously, I'm like, you're telling me, someone who is black and queer and gender variant, that like I need to vote for the best for the best of the worst. Yeah, the best of the worst is still really bad for me. Like, well, that, it's that's, good for you. Like, what do you mean? Uh, that's my new my my new attitude towards the lesser of two evils is that they both work for Satan. So like, <laughs> you know, it's like you're voting for the 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 good minion. I don't know. Minion is too cute now because of those fucking little yellow things. Yeah. But, but, um, but yeah, man, it's, uh, you know, for as much as I like talk about identity and I talk about, you know, like social issues, I really kind of try to say the political conversation because it it feels like a game. It feels like sports. It feels like theater. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason. Disrespectful to theater because I love theater. It, it It just, it feels like entertainment. To a point where I'm like, this is not where I want to put my energy. Yeah, it's definitely not real. 100% not real at all. I mean, look, uh, people are going to start having other things other than cops murdering people, which is a pretty good reason to protest, but there are going to be evictions coming up. They're not going to stop killing black men. You know, like, it's... uh, they're, I mean, they're killing black everybody. I mean, yeah. yeah, no, and and there's a new stati- uh, new poll that came out that was like 14 percent of Americans are happy, and I was like, holy fuck, I made it, because <laughs> I'm. Not- <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, I was joking around with my friend Jamie, and he was like, oh, we're in the one percent. <laughs> But I mean, obviously, oh, ha- happiness is relative. I don't know how I'm not happy with the way that the fucking world is working. But uh, yeah, dude, it's it's pretty crazy. Do you have any anything else that uh, that we haven't touched on? Or, or uh, I don't I don't think so. All right, cool. Do you have any questions for for me that I didn't cover that you were just like you saw my art and was like I need to ask? Uh, not really. I mean, we, we I didn't have any idea where this conversation would go, but I'm very happy that uh, you schooled me on some shit for sure. Like I feel dumb asking any questions after the education I just received. No, oh, so, well, you know, yeah. one of the other things that I do want to talk about. Yeah, because go ahead. I didn't touch on it at all is like, I'm a fat artist, mm-hmm. which is obvious if you look at my self portraits, because I am a fat person, but I did not necessarily set out to be a fat artist or to represent fat people. Mm-hmm. So basically in grad school, I was like trying to, so I was taking the headpiece photos, um, and having conversations about trying to have conversations about like hair 
and identity and, you know, having these hair pieces that I created enact some kind of identification on someone else's body and have that body enact their identity onto my head pieces. Mm. Um, but one of the critiques I got was that I like was not really showing a lot of body variance. And I just like, I'm like kind of a shy person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm just like, I don't really want to interact with like random people asking them to be in photo. Like it feels intimate to me. Yeah. So I was like, well, I'll just take pictures of my own body. And so then that kind of started to become how I started to work through ideas. Cause I was just like in, in, in an ideal world, I would not be in my photos because I like the idea of being behind the camera. Really. I like the idea of someone else being behind the camera and I tell them what to do, mm-hmm. but I'm poor. So I have to do it myself. <laughs> And so basically once I started posting those photos on Instagram, I was starting to get like a lot of attention from like a fat artist community Uh, that I didn't know existed, which is why I'm bringing this up. Um, Because like I would be remiss to end the conversation without talking about it. Well, especially because we were just talking about representation. Exactly. Yeah. And so I'm just like, this is wild to me because I'm just like, I'm not intentionally making art about fatness. I'm making art about myself and my experiences, which in turn had me start making work about it uh, because I have a new series that I'm like working on slash marinating a little bit of kind of these like sculptures that I'm thinking of as like kind of like idols. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to try to do some more kind of thinking about it. That's why I say it's marinating, but I have this piece called no fats uh, no blacks, no fats, no femmes. Mm-hmm. And all the gay listeners are going to know what that means. But for those of you who may not be familiar, um, there has been a trend on gay GPS-based apps. Um, and I'm sure this history goes back significantly further than that, of people putting um, what they don't want mm-hmm. to interact with them. As opposed to just putting what you actually do want to interact with you, <laughs> like it does not make sense to me. It's like, why spend time saying who you don't want to contact you when you yeah. could just spend time on who you do want to contact you? But that has something to do with kind of who we see value in. It's yeah. like, I don't even want you to waste my time by talking to me, you fat person, you black person. Uh, you it's also kind of dumb because on those, like they could just swipe on swipe left on them and then you'll never fucking match with those people. And the, the <laughs> and well, well, this is like most of the gay apps are not swipe based. Oh, okay. Um, How do they work? Cause like, cause grinder has a grid. A growler has a grid. Jacked has a grid. Scruff has a grid. I love all these fucking names. <laughs> yes. After the success of Tinder, a lot of these apps, added in a swipe function like like oh. even okay keep it as swipe has a swipe function now but anyway back to back to the the, the fat art thing mm-hmm. so basically so then i kind of started to think about my body differently and so to bring it back full circle to rakim and you know his art inspiring my art i i felt comfortable getting in front of the camera because i saw him get in front of the camera yeah and so you know my art is you know, very um, specific to me because I'm thinking about how my body looks like the body of the people who raised me. 
and how fat bodies are feminized. Um, and, and so in, in, in a lot of ways, I'm thinking about how my own, how I express my own femininity. And so those are a lot of the conversations I'm having within my art, because there was a time when I faced femphobia from my own mom, um, because I was being silly and effeminate in a photograph and mm. that was an issue. Mm. So those are the conversations I'm trying to have around intersection, intersecting identities, because it's like, you know, my body is quote unquote assigned to male at birth, but fat bodies are feminized. But at the same time, we also, when fat bodies are on female body, when, when female bodies are fat bodies, we also still shame them because we want them to take up as, lis- as little space as possible. So these are conversations that need to happen with specificity mm. because it's like the body, the, the quote unquote body positive movement, um, which I prefer fat liberation. Um, <laughs> I like that much better. <laughs> well, I mean, they, 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 let's talk it just about sounds like really a fucking is. party, dude. <laughs> it sounds like let's talk about what it, it should be a party. Let's talk about I what just, we really want to talk about. Yeah, when we, talk, when we call it body positivity, it's way too easy for like thin people to come and say, "Well, I was made fun of and told to eat a sandwich, mm-hmm. so I too need body positivity." And like, yes, mm. yes, yes. Let's talk about that but silently because right now we're talking about fat people. Like <laughs> let's stay focused. Like we can get to you. Like there is room for all these conversations. Yeah. Anyway, like right now there's a, like there's an overwhelming presence of female experiences. And when, you know, when we try to bring up male or male bodied experiences, it's kind of like, well, you're men. So you don't experience fat phobia. And it's like, well, that's definitely not true. You can t- and like that's why I keep bringing it back to power. I'm like you can talk about maleness and power and what's going on there without kind of dismissing a whole experience. Yeah, because there is definitely you know Fred Flintstone, uh, the King of Queens. What other um, fat? Uh, Peter Griffin. Culture? Peter Griffin. Like, Homer Simpson. Homer Simpson, but at the same, like, and they're with, you know, relatively thin, attractive women. But let's talk about the fact that, like, it's comical that they're with them. Like, that's the comedy of it, right? And then they're also kind of dumb. It's part and they're of, dumb, right? Yeah. The, the, Fat people tend to be not, portrayed as super stupid in, in, in general media. Like, they're, like, no one is necessarily saying they want to be Fred Flintstone. Yeah. No one, well, I mean, I think he's a better kind of more even representation of like a, a larger bodied man. But like, nobody wants to be Peter Griffin. Nobody wants to be Homer Simpson. Nobody wants to be the King of Queens. Like he doesn't even want to be the King of Queens. Like, he <laughs> loves me at some point. like, you know, like, like there is a conversation to be had there about how manliness um, brings power onto the fat body. But they're also like, those are also straight people. Yeah. Like, gay men have the worst body image. Like, of, of, like, I wouldn't say worse than women, but definitely on par. Like, the amount of, the amount of, like, that, that's why we have, like, I'm straight, thin, gay, fat. Like, that's why that idea exists. What's that, what does that mean? So, basically, if you, like, don't have abs, 
you'd be considered. Um, oh, like, okay, 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 okay. I like got straight it. skinny because yeah, it's yeah, like because yeah. you're like you're still thin basically. Mm-hmm. But if you but because you're gay and gay men have like stricter th- standards of beauty, I guess you're considered fat yeah. in the gay community. And it's like, well, if though if and then and then me, I'm like three hundred in three hundred and fifty pounds, mm-hmm. and I'm thinking about like my body, and I'm like, if that is fat, what does that make me? Yeah. Like like how, like and, 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 and like like how are we viewing like how are we viewing other bodies? Because it starts to become like this scale. It's like these are the acceptable bodies because they are thin, and if that starts to shrink more and more, or the only like fat bodies you accept are not really fat. Yeah the body positive movement becomes about those types of bodies and not the original types of bodies it was meant for yeah to represent well even because, uh, even yeah. what's his name uh, even uh, rakim said that he's not part of the body positive movement uh when he was I'm, on when, which what, what's that what which i was really glad that he said like, yeah no i mean that's how like and uh, that's that's how uh, little i know about it that I, I lumped him into that and he was like, no, 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 that's actually a different thing. So, uh, so yeah, the effect that you're talking about has definitely is something that I understand because I have been misinformed about what that is. But I mean, I think that that is what happens with movements like this. Mm -hmm. It starts with the people who are less represented and they're like, Hey, you know, these are, these are my qualms because body positivity and, and, you know, Fat liberation is about, you know, you know, airplane seats are getting really, really small. I can't fit. They want me to buy two seats. Like, that is discrimination. Like, seats... That know, also doesn't sound fucking cheaper. comfortable. Exactly. It's like, you know, it's it, like... Body positivity was not necessarily about I need to, like, be happy with how my body looks. It was about... The world needs to see my body so that it can humanize me again. Yeah. So that I can like live a like live a life not having to like worry about am I gonna fit where I go? Yeah. You know, not worrying about if I'm gonna be supported when I sit down. Like those are the conversations that really were supposed to be happening, not I need to be able to show my stretch marks on Instagram. Like that is very is there a subculture of, of fat people showing not... their is that a subculture on Instagram of fat people showing their stretch marks? No, but I'm just talking about like body positive becomes like this really like it's a broad, yeah. Moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get you. Because it's it's like it relatively thin, relatively slender people get to show their body under the guise of body positivity. Yeah, yeah. You get what I'm saying? It's no, like no, totally, this, totally. Like, like excuse to kind of show myself off without feeling bad about it. Yeah, or or and also like, and also to to like post under the guise of I'm being brave. Exactly. Thank you. That is exactly it. I I don't I know I don't want to dunk on anybody. Like I like I actually think everyone should be naked on any platform that they want to be, as long as it's you know tasteful. Um, <laughs> because I'm pretty much. I mean, I'm naked on my Instagram, so what I look like telling other people they can't be naked, but I'm also not trying to call it something. It's not like, I'm not trying to be like, you know, might delete later. Yeah. No, like I'm not deleting anything. Like my body deserves to be here. You're going to see it and have that conversation. 
So, Might yeah. delete later is like the least respectful, respectable way to post. <laughs> it's it's so like annoying. it's like it's like don't give me shit about this, okay? <laughs> oh my god. Anyway, that is, that is that is um, I think that kind of sums up me in a nutshell. No, I I feel like I've definitely gotten to know you. Not to pat myself on the back, but this whole topic thing is pretty genius. I'm kidding. <laughs> oh my god! I mean, it's intimidating. Is it? Uh, I actually yes. had to. You know, I actually had to lighten uh, up the language because people started. There were people that were like a little freaked out about what I was at and unsure, and I was like, and then sometimes, and then I realized that people would listen to the show and then message me and saying it sounds conversational, and I was like. Oh, that's what I'm putting now <laughs> in my yes, in my invites. Yes. So you've gotten the newer I mean, invite. To be fair, what's that? To be fair, the uh, the show is called "What's My Thesis," and like yeah. when you think about a thesis, like it's it's, it's serious <laughs> and monumental. And like and I actually, you... I, mean, I love that though. I love that I get to come here, and it is it is conversations about very thesis heavy things. Like I don't think anyone has come on yet, and like talked about like nothing of grave importance yeah i mean i've had people come on and talk about yoga but <laughs> i mean I think, but again, that no, is, that, i'm fucking i'm kidding i'm kidding i'm kidding i'm i it is it is of grave importance but it's uh, i i guess the joke to me is that you like you were saying that you're worried because other queer people have come on the show and have said everything that you were going to say. And I'm like, <laughs> not that I hate getting someone to talk to me about yoga, but it's definitely out. It's one of those things where I'm like, fuck, I'm going to have to like really listen now. <laughs> <laughs> and like, it's, those are the ones that stretch me where it's like, mm. Um, uh, all right, man. So it was an absolute pleasure talking to you. I definitely uh, feel like you did touch on a very unique aspect to queerness and uh, also were able to talk about intersectionality in a way that I have not. Uh, I actually, uh, full disclosure, I learned that term on this show. Get out of here. Yeah, it's on the episode Intersectionality and Deep Listening. You can't tell if you listen to the episode because I was just like... I played it off cool as fuck. And it was a white woman that taught me. A white woman who was talking about yoga. So there you go. Uh, I don't hate everybody. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have it back uh... on. You know, that woman, uh, we talked about some, it, uh, some stuff that was, like, it was my first time talking to a white woman and pushing back against her. I was super nervous about oh. it. She was awesome. She didn't even ask to fucking listen to the episode before I published, which, like, people ask me to do that all the time for nothing. And I always say no because it's, like, a fuck it's just like adds another step <laughs> to right. like the whole process to the whole workflow but yeah she's she was like uh she was very uh supportive and listening and when i posted that episode i, I started to weep because i had like confronted a white woman <laughs> publicly oh it's, my it's intense man doing the doing the show i'll tell you man it's not easy especially right now it, i mean it's easy in that i all i have to do is just invite more more diverse people but um, when you have a person that's not a person of color, they get very nervous about what they said. So, uh, I, you know, I believe that. Yeah. See, for me, I'm just like, you know what? Like I said what I said. Yeah. yeah. No, definitely. 
Anyway, I really appreciate you, man. And I'll definitely have you back on. I'm launching a Patreon uh, and I'm going to be having return guests on that. So I'll call you in. Oh, I'll, I'll, t- I'll touch base with you in a couple of months. As far as I'm concerned, we're friends at this point because, I mean, we've talked about pretty intimate shit. So, yeah, man. It, uh, what's it called? Definitely don't be a stranger. All right. Uh, do you have anything that you would like to promote? Um, you can follow me on Instagram at Andre Terrell Jackson. Uh, and, uh, that's pretty much it right now. Yeah. And you have a website too, though. We, we can point them to that. Oh, and my website is also andretarelljackson.com. Definitely go check it out. It's interesting stuff. It's, it, and I can't wait to see the new stuff. Uh, you know, like I love, I love like the more I do this, the more I realize like that the website is when something's complete. <laughs> for people yeah <laughs> for me it is yeah, yeah. and uh, follow me dude, on instagram if you want to see all the dope process work yeah i i've uh, i'm in the process of actually like showing more of my cv in my uh website because i figure if i'm hosting a show with art uh being a center focal point i should show a more accurate representation of what i'm doing but yeah, man, uh, I, it, dude, like it's absolute pleasure. Definitely Likewise, talk to you soon. Thank you so much for having me. No worries, man. Thank you for being, uh, a very organized and having, uh, some interesting shit to school me on. Like, I really, I'm going to l- listen to it again and be like, fuck man. <laughs> As I edit it, I'm like, mm. all right. So, uh, I'll talk to you soon. All right, man. All right. Talk to you soon. All right. Bye.